Have you seen the new episode of Jane the Virgin? Like in real time? Yeah. Like, like new? Like in, like it, it just came out last week, I think. No, I, no, I'm behind. Like, I don't even think I watched, I tried to watch the latest season on Netflix because mm-hmm. I love that show, Yeah. but I like accidentally dropped off the train. And so then I was all caught up. Mm-hmm. I catch up whenever Netflix drops a season, dumps mm-hmm. a season, whatever the word is, but I have a, t- tell me to keep going. Give me like, incentive. Keep going because literally everything starts happening. And let me tell you, this new episode, because it's the last season. Okay, this is it. This is it. This season five is it. And like, no spoilers, but like, I cry every episode for all the bright reasons. Aww. Okay, so I, this is probably problematic. I was team Raphael the whole time. That's perfect. Okay. That's perfect. (laughs) No spoilers, but like. That's perfect. I have been team Raphael the whole time. And I like Michael and I liked their relationship. Yeah. But I don't know why I felt so strongly. I, I don't know what the last thing was that you ended off on. So like. I have not finished. If this is season five, yeah. I have not finished season four. Uh, okay. So you've good. given me incentive because Jordan is out of town a lot right now. So mm-hmm. I'm like watching all the things that I know he doesn't care about, which yeah. actually he and I have such a large Venn diagram overlap, but mm-hmm. that that's actually harder than you'd think. Like, oh, yeah. like, like I'm watching friends and that's <laughs> about yeah. it. Um, so I will, okay. I will watch Jane the Virgin cause I put it off. I don't know why I couldn't quite get into season well, four. I think that at some point it became so heavy about like the, like I guess more adult thing. Yes. That, that were like, and it just handled it in a, like in a much, I guess just a less innocent way than yes. like at one point. And yeah. I think that, that kind of like. It became a heavier show. I think yeah. the, so I think why I dropped off was her relate. It was, it was after the flash forward. So when the movie, not yes. when the movie, but when the show basically forwarded the plot. Yeah. Three years or whatever. Yeah, three How, years. Was it three? three years, yeah. That's when I kind of was like, I love this. This is this is inventive, but mm-hmm. I also can't. I don't know. I couldn't do it. Yeah. Okay. I love Gina Rodriguez though. I'm rooting for her all the way. I know. Okay. All um, right. You've convinced me. Okay. Good. Episode 218 of From the Front Porch, a collection of conversations on books, small business, and life in the South. I'm Annie Jones, owner of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in beautiful downtown Thomasville, Georgia. <laughs> we had to record that twice. I'm so used to Chris's voice being there that I, I uh, messed up. And I'm joined today uh, by frequent podcast co-host and bookstagrammer, Hunter McClendon. Who you can find at Shelf by Shelf on Instagram. Shelf by Shelf West. <laughs> when you do your live show in California, there we go. would you please term it Shelf by Shelf I West? Will. And I'll give you the credit. Oh, thank you. The same way I give you credit for the rom com like I, did I you do see? really appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so you will notice, listeners, we are a man down uh, this evening. So normally we do backlist book clubs. That's what today's episode is all about. Um, we do backlist book clubs, used to be called love it or loathe it with our friend and cohort Emily McKenna but she couldn't at the last minute not be with us here tonight so we're we're doing it live we're (laughs) we're doing it we're going we're going at this anyway um so this is volume two 
of Backlist Book Club, which is a term, Hunter, we owe to you. So the rom-com sans is mine. I'm giving Backlist Book Club to you. That's perfect. Because you're where I heard that phrase. Um, but we kind of shifted gears. Love It or Loathe It was super binary. We would read a book. I liked it yeah. because I'm willing to make harsh judgments. Yeah. And I hated that, or I loved it. <laughs> um, but we kind of decided to switch gears and kind of reformat. So in 2019, we launched Backlist Book Club last episode we did in February we did a feel street could talk we really appreciate people's thoughtful feedback on that episode also just a fun fact or a helpful tidbit uh, that movie is now on Hulu so if you missed oh, it in the theaters yeah I am so excited <laughs> yeah oh. so if you Jordan and I are gonna watch it this weekend we have not um, watched it yet so if you missed it in the theaters like we did then it is streaming now on Hulu um, and then we decided to move into memoir territory. So this month, this episode, we are talking about Mary Carr's The Liar's Club. Why do we pick this? Well, I'm reading her third memoir, Lit, for my May selection, I think. And I brought up um, how much, because I wanted you to read this forever. Yeah, yeah. Because you love memoir. I do. And I don't always love memoir, but I love her memoirs. Yeah. Which I'm nervous. Like, I don't know if, like, like... Did you, you don't know what I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't talk about this before the episode. Um, no, I, I loved this book. I loved it. Okay. I do want to talk about... I felt reading this book... Well, and before I get into it, maybe we should explain... Why don't you do your thing and tell us what The Liar's Club is about? Okay. Um, I guess that The Liar's Club is really... It's about Mary Carr's early childhood... Um, from like, I guess like as early as she can really remember until yeah. about eight years old. Toddlerhood yeah. almost. Yeah. And it's kind of about, um, her and her family's like misadventures in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and about, and it, it's kind of framed by this relationship with her mother and this horrible event that's kind of like. That we don't get a lot of details about at first. It's kind right. of fuzzy. Yeah. And it's kind of, and that's kind of how the book is framed. And so you really just kind of. Um, it kind of snowballs into this mystery kind of about her mother and her mother's possible mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I felt like reading while I was reading this, I felt similarly to how I felt while reading Rebecca. Here's what I mean. I felt like, and I did not enjoy Rebecca, (laughs) but what I felt like was I was reading something that influenced, has influenced authors since Mm -hmm. this book came out. So this book came out, I want to say in 95. Yes. And when I was reading this, I really did keep thinking. I mean, it immediately brought to mind The Glass Castle. Um, It even brought to mind Educated more Mm -hmm. recently. Or a book that was really underappreciated. A a memoir I loved. I don't know if you read it or not. It was called The Glass Eye. Oh, you gave that to me. I haven't read it yet, but it's on my TBR. Well, it's really good. Um, But I was reading Liar's Club, and the whole time I was almost... Not distracted, but I very much felt like, oh, I'm reading something that has influenced writers for the past two decades. Yeah. Surely. Like, mm-hmm. there's... Because it is so similar mm-hmm. to The Glass Castle. Doesn't it also, as far as the writing goes, remind you a little bit of Priest Daddy, just in the yes. point of nature? Yes. Yeah. That's a great... Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, all books I loved. Yeah. So I loved The Liar's Club. I just felt like... I was reading something very familiar. Mm-hmm. That's not to say, I mean, sometimes, and I feel like it's okay for me to wrap my mom out. Sometimes my mom is like, I can't read memoirs. They're all the same. Like she feels yeah. like they're all these sad, heavy stories. Yeah. And 
to her credit, sometimes that's really true. Yeah. She also really loved educated. Mm-hmm. So I think we can acknowledge that we're willing to give exceptions to our rules when the writing is really good. Yeah. Or when the story is well told. And I think that's the case for the Liars Club because some of it did feel so much like the Glass Castle for me. Mm-hmm. But the writing is so good. And when I realized Mary Carr did this 20 years ago, like I feel like she maybe has set the tone. Well, um, every um, anytime people mention her, it's so funny because she has a she has a book called The Art of Memoir that came out a couple years ago. And she the first line is something along the lines of, nobody elected me the boss of memoir. <laughs> But she is responsible for kind of reinvigorating yes. the genre. And that I did a slight little bit of research before we recorded in that I went to Mary Carr's Wikipedia page. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when I got there, I do think, and then I jumped over to Jeanette Wall's Wikipedia mm-hmm. page, and I do think the Liars Club kind of jump-started or renewed an interest in this type of storytelling. Yes. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I do. Um, so the way we are trying to format Backlist Book Club is from my great books classes back at good old Faulkner University. And um, basically, we get two questions a piece, more or less. Um, we can ask maybe a few more since Emily's not here. But... Um, Basically, two questions that came from the text and then kind of use that to guide our conversations. So I'm going to launch with my question, my, which is, um, I have a, I just wanted to know what you thought of the epigraphs in this book. So I always love to see what an author picks mm-hmm. for their epigraphs, but what I, or their epigraph and what I think, and if that's a term that's not familiar to you, and I don't mean to like woman-splain, but but I was not familiar. Yeah. I didn't know what they were called. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's just the line or the quote or the poem that yeah. sometimes opens a book. Mary Carr has one before every section mm-hmm. of hers, and they're odd. Like, yeah. they're very unique. And in fact, the last one, I'm going to see if I can flip to it. The one before the last section is the one where I was like, why did she pick this? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, you don't realize why until after you've read it, Mm -hmm. you've read the section. So, um, the envoy of Mr. Cogito or Cogito, um, in a translation by John and Baganda Carpenter. Anyway, it's this kind of long, I think for an epigraph, it's kind of long. Um, but the way it sets the tone for each section. I was just mm-hmm. curious if that was something you noticed or if that's something that I just weirdly picked up on. Well, I think part of this comes from, because she's she's actually, she considers herself to be first and foremost a poet. Okay. And I think that that influenced a lot of her, like, arrangement yes. of this, including the epigraphs. And I think that she has such a fine ear for language that she knows how even the epigraph is going to, like, Set the tone. Yeah. Like you said. Yeah. I think that's true. I forgot that when I when I went to her <laughs> Wikipedia page. And at the end of the book, she references, we see her in that last section of The Liars Club, we see her as an adult mm-hmm. um, or as a young adult. And she references writing a poem. And so that makes total sense to me because what she picks, and I'm sure authors do spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's going to set the tone for their work, mm-hmm. but it felt like she really was purposeful in a way that I don't find every author to be. And right. maybe that's maybe that's harsh of me. Um, I think that's fair. But let me see. The one that opens the first section is by Ezra Pound. Nothing matters but the quality of the affection. In the end, that has carved the trace in the mind. 
so good. Mm-hmm. It's so good because it totally sets the tone for what you're about to embark on. Yeah. Um, I read this all in one sitting yesterday. Okay. I'm not sure that's the way I would recommend this yeah. be read. Like literally I that's read this. That's amazing though. I am so <laughs> impressed because every time I, because I've read it three times now. Okay. And every time it takes me at least a week. Because it is dense. Yes. Not in a bad way at all. Mm-hmm. Like I never felt overwhelmed. I mean, obviously I was capable of on my quote unquote day off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think I just read for six straight hours mm-hmm. and that, I'm a fast reader. I need, I feel like anybody who listens to this podcast knows that by now, but, um, I should admit it. I'm a fast reader. Um, but her background as a poet is obvious to me. Yeah. And so it does, it doesn't, um, read quick. Right. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. She packs a lot and yet every word means something. Pre-study is a great example. Right. Good call. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that. Um, okay. What was one of your questions? Um, <laughs> I'm like still like so caught up in the poetry thing. Yeah. Um, now I will say something that I wanted to know was actually, uh, what's your thoughts were on how she handled the tone, the tone of this. Um, cause I mean, this is, this is a book about someone who has gone through a lot of stuff. Yes. But I love how, I love how she handled this because I did personally did because I felt like she never had a woe is me moment. No, she reminds me of you. (laughs) I mean, truly you and I have been friends a while. Um, and I, so as friends, we will sometimes joke that you're Phoebe Buffay. Yes. Meaning you like Phoebe Buffay will be talking to her friends and then all of a sudden like, we'll say something like, Oh, I lived in a box for a year. (laughs) And everybody kind of is like, you lived in a box and you will sometimes like just drop these bombs like of things that happened to you. And everyone around you is like, is he joking? What does he mean? And you're not joking. These are real things that have happened to you. And one thing I notice is, I mean, she is dealing with, I think clearly her mother's mental illness, Mm -hmm. her father's and her mother's struggle with alcoholism Mm -hmm. um, or abuse of alcohol. And her own, I mean, Hunter, I loved this book. There is a passage in this book that made me almost physically ill. I think you can probably guess which one it was, but she has two terrible, yes. um, I don't even know what you want to call these assaults, sexual assaults. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's fair. I could even go stronger, but this is a PG podcast, so we'll try to keep it PG. Um, but she has two really awful encounters mm-hmm. as a child. Yeah. And there is one of them that really did almost make me physically ill. It was so, but the way she, I think it's partly because she's a poet. Mm -hmm. I think it's partly because she's a tough Texan. And I really do think sometimes, and perhaps this is true of other, um, other geographies as well. Mm -hmm. But in the South, I feel like we just tell it like it is. And sometimes people will say something. You maybe (laughs) will say something where I'm like, but wait, that's actually terrible. (laughs) And and so Mary Carr Mm -hmm. is dropping these bombs Mm -hmm. and she does handle the sexual assaults, um, really rapes. She handles those perhaps with a less tongue in cheek hand. Yes. But normally she is dealing with some things with a very, uh, sharp sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Like that is what, so it's poetry, but it's also this tough Texas humor yeah. with really horrific childhood experiences yeah. that never quite feel horrific. Right. Except for, except for those two scenes. But, yeah. um, 
I don't know. Is that kind of what yes. you feel too? Well, yeah. And that's, a, it's so funny because, um, it's funny that you say this because the other day I was talking to someone and I, I think this is an appropriate thing I can say, but, um, at one point, uh, when I was like younger, like I broke my leg, mm-hmm. um, it, like my stepbrother pulled it through the stairs and it like broke, but we couldn't afford to go to the hospital. So I just like sat there for like three weeks and just like healed at home. <laughs> and, um, super but, fine. You know? Yeah. And like, and I was like telling the story and I was like laughing about it. Cause it was just so funny. Cause I was thinking like, cause the, we, my mom had spent a bunch of money on, on lottery tickets mm-hmm. and I was like, and she's like, oh, well, we're, we're probably going to win. The, we're probably going to win cash three. So it's going to be fine. It was just, I so let's so, just wait till the, yeah. till the cash comes in. But, um, but, but I think that like, that's when you grow up like that, when you grow up with wild things like that, it just, it feels so normal. It becomes your normal. Yes. And this is something I do think. Perhaps we don't all have Mary Carr or Hunter McClendon level of <laughs> levels of experience. Um, and sometimes that has bothered me too in literature. Mm-hmm. It's part of the reason I was so drawn to Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. I feel like that was one of the first books I read where I was like, well, this is just a normal guy yeah. who lived a normal, boring life, but was able to really write about it well. Yeah. Because my life sometimes, especially my childhood, now don't get me wrong, we have some really funny stories, but I think if somebody were to just look at it briefly without examining it, it would look a little leave it to beavery. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, though, we all have experiences or dark moments or yes. things, but to us, they're normal. Yes. And to us, they don't seem outlandish or ridiculous. Phoebe's life seems normal to her. That's mm-hmm. why she doesn't blanch at those stories. Right. The same goes for you. I think the same goes for Mary Carr. So the tone of this book, the other thing that struck me and I, it's been a while since I read The Glass Castle, so I'd be curious if Jeanette Walls employed the same tactic. Mary Carr feels like she is talking to you. Mm-hmm. And there's, in fact, one of my favorite aspects of this memoir is that she references her sister, Lisa. Mm-hmm. Um, she does say it's pronounced Lisa, but in yes. my head I also kept pronouncing it Lisa. Lisa. Yeah, because that's how it looks. Um, but she will say something, mm-hmm. and then she'll either parenthetically, or maybe she'll just say, if Lisa were here, she would tell you, or yes. if Lisa were here, she would tell you, this is what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And I love that for two reasons. She's reminding us that memoir is in the eye of the beholder, mm-hmm. meaning she has written this, so this is her perspective. This mm-hmm. is not her mom's story. This is her telling her mom's story. Yes. This is not her dad's story. This is her telling mm-hmm. her version of her dad's story. So she's reminding us, her sister might have a different point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's also saying, this is my truth. And I cringe a little, right? We live in a world where I th- feel like I will hear on the news or on a podcast or something. Somebody say like, you tell your truth. And i I bow up a little yeah. like, but wait, there's still truth. Right. Like there's they still will, they, People treat truth in such an elastic way. Yes. That yeah. makes me a little angsty and yeah. a little nervous. But what Mary Carr is saying is, no, this is my truth, meaning it's not the truth. Right. I'm being the most truthful I can possibly be. Um, And sometimes that has a large overlap with the absolute truth. Mm -hmm. And sometimes this is my perspective. And here's where I'm also telling you Lisa might think differently. Yeah. And so I really loved that. And I don't remember another memoir where it felt like she was pulling you aside. The author was pulling you aside to tell you. To remind you, I know you're reading this. The only time I felt like somebody did that recently might have been in Educated. There's like a chapter mm-hmm. where she does say it was remembered differently by different people. She does say that once, yeah. but it but Mary Carr employs it a lot. Yes. And Mary then, Carr, it's through the whole book. Yeah. Um, which I really find to be original and, a, and an important 
tactic to mm-hmm. utilize, like that I don't see done very often. So I really liked that as far as the tone goes too. Like that was something else that set the tone for me. Um, this book primarily is her childhood. Yeah. There's a huge old chunk in Texas. Mm-hmm. And then there's a smaller portion in Colorado, and then she flashes forward several years, mm-hmm. a la Jane the Virgin, <laughs> <laughs> bringing it full circle, uh, to 1980 Texas again. Mm-hmm. What did you think? You've read this book three times. What do you think of that formatting? I think, for example, that that section in Colorado, I feel like she's holding back some things on purpose. Yeah. Because she references multiple times that this stint in Colorado was actually really horrible. Mm-hmm. And her mother's husband at that time was not good. Yeah. And we don't really get a ton of insight into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if it's because it was such a truly brief period in her life. Right. Or if it's because she doesn't want to dwell on it too much. Mm-hmm. Whereas it felt like in Texas, we got a lot more detail and a lot more um, fuller picture. Yeah. I don't know. Am I imagining that? No. And I, do you know what I think part of it is? Is I would, I'm going to make an assumption that if you notice, whenever Mary, when you read the book, Mary Carr, she never, I, I don't think at any point she ever, she never calls, like she never calls her parents alcoholics. She never mm-hmm. calls these people no. crazy or anything. She, Gives you the facts and lets you kind of make your own decisions about who these people are. Yes. And I feel like maybe she did not have enough to go off of to like give you a whole truth. Mm-hmm. And I think that whenever she do- can't give you a whole truth, I think she does kind of pull back some. Yeah. Which I kind of respect and admire that too. I do too. And yeah. I, and I didn't, yeah, I didn't mind it. I do think as a reader, again, reading this in one sitting yesterday, I think I was like, oh, Texas is done, and actually there's not much book left. Right. Like, there's not much book left when we go to Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if part of that is... I do agree with what you're saying about... I do think it was probably really traumatic, too. Yeah, because probably... the events get a little heavier. Mm-hmm. She's getting a little bit older. Um, and then what I also think is important is it bounces to 1980. Mm-hmm. And... I think, because I'm Annie B. Jones, and I think, oh, we're back in Texas, we're back with Dad, Mm -hmm. things are going to feel as normal as they get for this Mm -hmm. family again. And instead, we kind of see, in that missing decade of time, I think Mm -hmm. it's about a decade, maybe it's, I don't know, it's a a span of years that we don't get, we're not privy to. It's about a decade, yeah. Um, Instead, we realize how Lisa, Lisa has turned out, we realize how... We realize some things that happened to the mom. We realize mm-hmm. the dad has had a stroke. We realize the dad maybe isn't the hero that mm-hmm. he looked like during her childhood. Something that was really, I don't, I feel like it's a book from 1995. It's okay to talk spoiler. Like there's yeah. nothing really spoilery here. But in the last section of the book, it's 1980, Texas. She's helping care for her, her father. Mm-hmm. And I was really saddened to discover that she and her father did not have a huge relationship while she was an adult. Yeah. Because in the book, at least in those first two sections, he's flawed for sure. Mm-hmm. He's this Texas man who wants to kind of live this simple life. He, what he says he does, um, he maintains the same job for 40 years. What, yeah. you know, kind of just exactly what I picture like a reliable aging baby boomer to be like. Yeah. I don't know. I, oh, yeah. And I'm sure he's older than that because he was a World War II vet. Mm-hmm. You just get this really interesting portrayal of him. 
And now that I'm talking out loud, maybe it's because in the first two sections of the book, she is a child Mm -hmm. and her father is her hero. Yeah. And by adulthood, she has realized the flaws in her father Mm -hmm. and it kind of broke my heart a little. Like, I think I really bought into the fact that her dad was her hero. Do you know what it reminded me of a little bit? It reminded me of whenever you, you like go your whole life reading To Kill a Mockingbird and then Ghost of the Watchman comes out and you're like, oh, okay, I see. (laughs) Never mind. And you know, and like I have said before, I know Atticus Finch is flawed. Mm-hmm. I know he is even problematic. Mm-hmm. In, but I also know he's a man of his time. Mm-hmm. And so I still love him. I still love her dad. But I I was brokenhearted over that he didn't fully understand her career. Mm-hmm. She did not really let him have access to that part of her. Mm-hmm. Um And even, like, she stops going with him to the Liars Club. Like, Mm -hmm. and to this group of, the Liars Club, where the book gets her, its title, is this group of men that her father hangs out with at the local, I imagine, like, pool bar. Like, the billiards hall here (laughs) here in Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and they sit around and kind of shoot the breeze. um, And they call themselves the Liars Club. And she, as a kid, went. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, as an adult men flirt with her. Mm -hmm. I don't think she, her dad likes the way people treat her. And so he kind of is like, no more. I don't even know that he tells her no more. It just kind of fizzles out. Fizzles out. And Mm -hmm. also I do think that's partly adulthood. I mean, you move away, you, you change jobs, you move out. Like that's what happens. But it's funny too, because, um, cause I'm obsessed with Mary Carr. Like at, like outside of this, I am obsessed with her. And she talked about whenever she was first, when she, at one point, it was, um, when I, cause her father, spoiler, her father is passed, passed away now, but whenever he was dying, I mean, this is years ago, that's happened anyway, but, um, mm-hmm. on the plane ride back from like her taking care of him, she wrote out all of these pages and she had always in her mind, like in her mind, she'd said, he has abandoned me. I have gone to therapy. He has abandoned me, all this stuff. And then she realized at one point in her like adult age, he never abandoned me. Like, yes, he was all of these things. He was a flawed human being, but like. He came home every night whenever he said he was. He, mm-hmm. like, he offered to be there for me, you know? And, like, she said that it wasn't until it was almost too late that, like, she was able to have that clarity. Mm-hmm. And... And to ha- perhaps realize he didn't abandon her. They were just really different people. Yes. Interesting. I And I just thought, since so much of the memoir took place in her childhood, mm-hmm. it was really interesting at the very end to get this one last small section mm-hmm. kind of reflecting back and seeing her as an adult... And and seeing her mother, the whole book, I think we kind of felt like her mother was struggling and was flawed and struggled with mental health, mm-hmm. mental illness, I mean. And we don't get that much of her dad until the last section. And so I think mm-hmm. that's why it kind of was gut-wrenching for me because I was like, oh, he was the stable one. Right. And then you realize, oh, no, he really wasn't stable yeah. either. She really didn't have, she really just didn't yeah. have that in her life. When I also, back to the voice real quick, it's so funny because I think that her voice People may not at first, they'd be like, well, why, like, why does she have this voice? Because it's very poetic, but also very, like, Southern, like, very, like, but, like, Southern, like, gravelly Southern. It has and I did texture. not expect that. When yeah. I started it, I don't know why I affil- I associated her with New York. New- right. I don't know why well, she's in, she's in, um She teaches at um, the same place that George Saunders teaches at. Okay. Um, which is where oh gosh I can't remember I don't know it's like it's Not um on the back of my book to help oh me. gosh I don't even know well you guys like listen she teaches at a school <laughs> she teaches somewhere yeah that is in New York I'm yeah sure. well that anyway it was a very um Syracuse University I Syracuse think. it was 
from the moment I opened it, I felt like, oh, this is Southern lit. Yeah. And people don't always consider Texas. I think feel like right. feel like Texas is almost its own entity. Mm-hmm. And listen, if you live in Texas and you haven't read this book, it's time. Mm-hmm. It's time for you. Because I felt like it was beyond time for me to read it. Mm-hmm. But while I was reading, I was like, anybody who lives in Texas, I bet knows these people. Yeah. Like, I bet knows this landscape. Mm-hmm. The sense of place in this novel is deep. Yeah. Um. I feel like I interrupted you. Well, I was just going to say, it's funny because like the, that graveliness, that, that really strange Southern like gruffness that she gets is from her dad, but her mom is actually a very intellectual person. Yeah. And so I feel like her voice is such a beautiful, almost like a love letter to mm. her parents in saying, this is the voice that you've given me. Mm-hmm. Let me speak for it. Like, let me tell your story a now. A tribute to them. Yes. She's really that's a lovely way to put that. And I, I definitely get that sense throughout the whole book because she, my, one of my other questions was the liars club. I just wondered why this name, Mm -hmm. because to me, the book is so much about her mom, Mm -hmm. but the liars club is a phrase that belongs very much to her dad. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right. I think her storytelling capabilities, I think what she's acknowledging with this title and with this book is where she is able to write this mm-hmm. comes from her dad. Yeah. But her ability to be able to maybe step outside it a little bit mm-hmm. and to look at it through a different lens maybe comes from her mom. Yeah. Um, but the Liars Club I thought was such an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. The book definitely opens and closes with scenes from that group. Mm-hmm. But the book again feels so much about her mom that that was a that was a surprising choice to me Mm -hmm. um okay what else what Um, have we not covered well i just want to say like i do want i like i want you to read her i haven't read her her third memoir lit i read the art of memoir and i read cherry but cherry is the second one which takes place about the gap that that little or it takes place between like um like maybe eight or to 10 or something like that until she's like 17. Post Colorado? Yes. Okay. And when, how, yeah, when it, it, it ends around that time, whatever that is. And, or it starts whenever the Liars Club ends and it okay. ends at 17. Um, and it's all, it reminded me of like how Yana Lossi writing Kept for Girls mm-hmm. dealt with girlhood in a way that like other books haven't. Yes. That's how Cherry was, but with this distinct voice, which is also funny because this is in Texas. I'm also reading. Anton Disclavani's The After Party, which is in Texas. Oh, that's right. So it was oh, like, you're this, on like a this Texas kid. Yeah, that's yeah. fun. But um, but yeah, but I think but I think that she might get some more closure by reading because she originally that was one thing she originally wanted the Liars Club. It, her proposal, her book proposal, was her first was all three memoirs in one. Oh, okay. But then she just expanded so much in the Liars Club, which I think that it kind of feels when I read the second one, it did feel like a a continuation of the story in a very tr- like middle book kind of way. Well, that makes sense because <clears throat> I don't know that I have a complaint about this book at all, mm-hmm. but very much it feels like um, there's a lot of content and you're reading, like I said, it feels kind of dense. Not, And I want to stress, it was not hard to read. Right. I just mean she's packing in a lot of storytelling yeah. for a very short number of years in her life. Mm-hmm. And then for it to kind of wrap up not it felt like it wrapped up rather quickly yeah. considering the rest of the work yeah. and so cherry covering that other ground makes a lot of sense to me because mm-hmm. it didn't feel like liars club does not feel like it's missing anything right. you were given a complete story mm-hmm. but it certainly feels like 
there's more of this life you want to know about. Mm-hmm. And so, it okay, so maybe I need to read Cherry. I really want to read Lit. I know. I, I, yeah. I did not re- fully realize what that book was about. And now I'm very, I'm always. That's why I told you, because I knew you'd want to be. I'm into faith journeys, man. I like, I want to know, like, why'd you make these decisions or loss of faith, whatever yeah. it is. I just, that's She makes me want to be Catholic. <laughs> Like, I love it, and I really I read her Wikipedia page, and that's like one of the first things is that she describes herself as a cafeteria Catholic. Yeah. It's like, oh, let me read more about this. Yeah, well, like there's like a she had like a a, a speech one time. It was like from Black Belt Center to like cafeteria Catholic or something like that. Interesting. So, yeah, I find her to be fascinating, mm-hmm. and I'm aggravated that I hadn't read this before. I'm aggravated <laughs> at you for like taking the okay. Hunter's literally pounding his fists <laughs> onto his knees. I feel like we wrap these conversations up like. With Love It or Low that we had this way to really wrap it up neatly and tidily. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how to neatly wrap this up. Except if you're in Texas, you or if you have ever lived in Texas, I feel like you should read this. Mm-hmm. All the comp titles, kind of, we already named. Yeah. Um, and then your backlist book club is reading Lit. Yes. In May. Yeah, the third one, which I don't really think because when I read Cherry, I feel like Cherry was so, like I th- I think she writes them where you can read them on their own. Okay. So I, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Is well, I'm I already said it. Liars Club does not feel like it's missing anything. Right. You feel like you've read a complete story. Definitely, um, reminiscent of Glass Castle, but I really like your pre-study comparison. Mm-hmm. I think it's really good. Um, also kind of reminded me if you're local around here, ecology of a cracker childhood, mm-hmm. it, there are elements of that here as well. Um, okay. Thanks Hunter. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. We'll do backlist book club again in June and we will announce on our Instagram account at bookshelf the book we have selected so that hopefully you can read along with us. Started out strong, but now we're coming up thin. Oh, we've cast our lots with all the devils of sin. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. From the Front Porch is a production of The Bookshelf. It's produced by me, Annie Jones, and Chris Jensen, and edited by Chris Jensen. You can find the books we talked about on today's episode for purchase at www.bookshelfthomasville.com forward slash shop. Many thanks to Forlorn Strangers for our theme music. The song is called Bottom of the Barrel, and it is on their album Forlorn Strangers. You can find more information at forlornstrangers.com. For access to bonus content, you can follow us on Patreon. We would love your support there. You can find us at patreon.com slash fromthefrontporch. For full show notes and lists for further reading, you can go to fromthefrontporchpodcast.com. This week in the bookshelf... A relatively funny thing happened. <laughs> um, we get solicitation calls. I know everybody does on their cell phones, but guys, you still get them on your landlines too. So the bookshelf has a landline. We got this call, and I don't even—I won't even call this a solicitation call. This was somebody calling, panicked my staff a little bit because he called and said that we hadn't paid our utility bill and our power was going to be going out in 20 minutes. And I. It at first was like mortified, right? Cause like my gut is like, oh no, did I somehow miss a bill? How did this happen? Like panic sets in. And then 
It was a call from Georgia Power and our utilities are not done through Georgia Power. So I was like, hold up. So I had Lucy take a message and then I went back through my records just to confirm, mm-hmm. yes, I paid my bill to a different company because we don't use Georgia Power, but I want to make sure I had all my bases covered. Mm-hmm. And then I called that phone number back and the person answered, hello, like not professionally, like not, this is Georgia Power or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, I called him back and I said, are you the person claiming to be from Georgia Power? And he said, yes, no, I really am from Georgia Power. I said, no, you're not. I said, stop lying to me. If you work for Georgia Power, you're terrible at your job. How dare you call small businesses and make us feel like we haven't paid our bills? This is terrible. I said, it's a really crappy thing to do to a person. And then I hung up. That is amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. I also, it was therapeutic. I never want to be cruel. And I did not want to be mean to him. But I was so infuriated because what if I had been an old person? Mm -hmm. Like, or, or, and like, I just picture my grandmother or somebody who like thinks, oh no, my internet, my my phones, my lights are about to be shut off. Mm -hmm. I need to call this number. Because what he was trying to do was he had given us another number to call. And I'm sure if I had called that number, they would have asked me for a total and I would have paid it and it would have been a scam and a fraud and then they would have had my card number. And so I just couldn't believe, it made me so mad that then I just, I wanted him to know, hey, there's a person you're calling. Like I'm a small business owner and you tried to scam me. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not sure if that's a funny story, but it's definitely something that happened in the bookshelf this week. (laughs) Thank you guys so much for listening and we will see you next week.